This episode may contain unsettling material or subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. In the early morning hours of June 18, 1982, in St. Louis County, Missouri, a driver notified police that they had witnessed a car accident. According to the witness, a silver and black 1981 Ford Futura had been driving the wrong way in the westbound lane and it had gone down the embankment on I-270, 130 feet west of Old Hall's Ferry Road. The car had crossed a grass median and struck a concrete median barrier where it came to rest. Given the time of day, police responded to the single car accident possibly expecting to find a drunk driver behind the wheel. But when they arrived at the scene sometime around 4 a.m., they found that the driver of the car was dead. Police identified the driver as 20-year-old Daniel W. King, the county resident. The police noticed fresh blood on the right side of his body, but no closer investigation was done, and his body was sent via ambulance to the coroner's office. Within an hour, the coroner called police and told them that the cause of death was gunshot wounds and warned police that they needed to rope off the accident scene and treat it as a crime scene. The body, the car, and other possible evidence had already been compromised, but detectives headed to the scene and began to investigate the crime. King had been shot a total of three times in the chest, side, and arm. The weapon was a 22 caliber handgun, and robbery didn't seem to be a motive as the victim's wallet with cash inside it were found in the car. Detectives arrived at the scene just after 5 a.m. and carefully studied the area where the car had come to rest. They noted that the Ford Futura had damage to the left side of the vehicle, the same side that was resting against the concrete median. The car was facing east, and there was mud underneath and on the sides of the car. Glass from a shattered window was inside the car, and the trunk was ajar. It was when the police began to look at the events leading up to the crash that a mix of unanswered questions, eyewitness accounts, and possible suspects would come together and turn this case into a puzzling mystery, which remains unsolved to this day. Daniel King, or Danny as he was known to family and friends, was only 20 years old, but he seemed to have a bright future ahead of him. He was a newlywed and had only three days before become a father. He had a good job as a union pipe fitter. With so much going for him and no criminal history, Danny didn't seem like the type of person that would wind up being the victim of such a seemingly random and violent act. Danny was the son-in-law of a St. Louis County Circuit Court judge so it would seem like all the stops would be pulled out to solve Danny's murder, and to determine if Danny was killed by a stranger or someone he knew. Despite being a busy guy with so much going on, Danny found time to unwind. Being an athlete in high school, Danny stayed active in sports and played softball at the time of his death. Only hours before he was murdered, Danny had played in a softball game after visiting his wife and baby daughter at the hospital. After the game, Danny headed out for drinks with some of the players and then wound up driving two friends home, dropping the second one off at his house at around 2 a.m. About two hours later, at just before 4 a.m., the eyewitness to Danny's car accident would make the phone call to police. It should have taken Danny about 11 minutes to drive from his friend's house to where his body and car were found. Yet it apparently took him almost two hours to get there. Where had Danny been during that two-hour period? Once police worked back to the time around the murder, and in the previous days, they discovered some disturbing incidents and suspects that may or may not be related to Danny's murder. A 
few days prior to the murder, police had received reports of a dark or maroon car, possibly Lincoln Continental, firing shots at another vehicle, very close to where Danny would later be found dead. The shots were fired in the early morning hours around 2 a.m. A man told police that he had been driving when the Lincoln began to tailgate him. At one point, the driver of the Lincoln pulled alongside him and raised a handgun up where the victim could see it. The victim slowed down to let the Lincoln go by, but instead, the driver started to play games with the victim and kept close to him. Fearing that he might be in danger, the victim made a sudden turn to get off the highway and away from the Lincoln. It was then that he heard gunshots that wound up striking his car. Due to the Lincoln driver firing shots for no apparent reason into another car, and since it was so close to the day and location where Danny was killed soon after, police wanted to find the driver of that car to question him in Danny's murder. The suspect was described as being white in his 20s or 30s and being on the tall side with dark curly hair. It wasn't long before police identified the driver of the Lincoln as a 22-year-old local man with a criminal history. They arrested him for shooting at the driver in the incident in the days before Danny's murder. Although they had no physical evidence or witness linking the man to Danny's murder, it's clear that police suspected he may have been Danny's killer. This man's name and face were plastered on local TV and in newspapers. It was at this point that an eyewitness came forward to tell police that he had seen the most likely suspects in Danny's murder, and that the 22-year-old man that the police were eyeing up as a possible shooter was not the man he saw. The eyewitness had been reluctant to come forward because his wife had implored him not to get involved, but the man told her, that is not the man I saw on the side of the road, and he felt he needed to call police to let them know what he had witnessed. The eyewitness, a truck driver, had driven by Danny's car shortly before he was found murdered. He claimed that Danny's car was parked on the side of the road behind a dark car, possibly Chevy. As the witness drove by, he noticed a very attractive blonde woman in a tan outfit standing near the cars. Her long blonde hair was pulled back into a bun, but hung down in the back. The truck driver slowed down to see what was going on, almost coming to a stop. It was then that he noticed a man walking out of the weeds on the side of the road. He described the man as having slicked back hair and wearing a dark sport coat. He even noticed that the man appeared to be slightly pigeon-toed as he walked. However, the truck driver did not see Danny and continued past the scene. The truck driver called police and recounted what he had seen, but after that, police never followed up with him again. There's no way to know what insight this witness could have given investigators. But he was adamant that the 22-year-old that was arrested in the other shooting incident was not the man he had seen with the blonde woman near Danny's car. This witness has since passed away, so this may have been one of the biggest missed opportunities for investigators in Danny's case. 36 years later, Danny King's case remains unsolved, and there are more questions than answers. The only suspect police closely considered was never arrested in Danny's murder, and went on to serve time for other unrelated crimes. The best witness to the crime was not properly questioned, nor was the couple he saw identified. When Danny's life ended on that dark stretch of highway in 1982, the murder had long-lasting effects on those around him. Danny King's wife became a young widow, and she was left alone to raise a baby girl, a baby girl who was robbed of the chance to ever know her father. Danny's parents and siblings were forced to come to terms with a beloved family member being stolen from them, and to wonder why Danny had died. This case has so many components and possibilities, and Danny's younger brother Jim talked with me about the family struggle over the last 36 years to find justice for Danny. Danny. 
Jim, welcome to the show. I appreciate you talking to me about your brother Danny's case. And this one really seems like a, a puzzling one because on one hand it seems like there's a good suspect in reading through the materials, but on the other hand there's a witness that sort of discounts that suspect. So I can only imagine how frustrating your brother's murder must have been for you and your family. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of things that were frustrating, um, you know, um, from from that standpoint. I, I think the f most frustrating part is, uh, you know, they came to us, uh, you know, in the morning at six o'clock in the morning and said, hey, you, you know, your, your your brother, your son to my parents was was killed in a car accident. You know, that's shocking enough. He's 20 years old, had a, just married, had a three day old baby. You know, that's sad enough. And then uh, they come back to our, the police come back to our house three hours later and say, oh, we made a mistake. It wasn't a car accident. You know, he was shot three times. Um, so if you can only imagine that feeling uh, and then ramp it up three hours later that he was shot, it's, uh, yeah, to say the least, uh, it, it, it's, it, it's a crazy situation. So it's sort of like getting the news a second time. Yeah, absolutely. Second time and worse. Yeah. And and your parents were around at the time too. They they heard that news, and I can only imagine they were devastated by that. Yes, I was. Uh, I was only sixteen, so I was living at home, going to high school, and, and lived with my parents. So I remember when the police came to uh, the house and told them, you know, about the, about the the, the so called car accident, and then they came back, you know, three hours later and told them about that. I mean, I think it was uh, uh, they were in a state of shock at the time, and and I think really for. For a long time, I think even for months and, and even into years, they were in a state of shock over the whole situation. And your brother was, you know, 20 and you you were 16 at the time. Were you guys close? Yeah, we were close. I mean, we grew up uh, fairly close. And then as we got older, obviously, I was still in high school and, and he was out and he was working uh, his job. He was a apprentice pipe fitter working on, uh, you know, uh, building buildings and things like that. So um, uh, it, we weren't as close once he got out. But, uh, yeah, we were much closer as we went to school together, went to the same high school together and, and things like that. So, yeah. So one thing in addition to Danny's daughter, you know, being left without a father is his young wife is a widow at this point, you know, after he was murdered. Tell us about her experience. Yeah, yeah, I can't even imagine. And, and his wife, uh, Colleen, we were friends with them since we were born, you know, since we were young kids. Our parents were friends with them. And we, you know, we've known them forever. And um, I can't even imagine being 19 years old, being in the hospital and your uh, parents and your in-laws come tell you you had a three day old baby there and come tell you your, your husband's been murdered. And I, I can't even imagine what goes through your mind as far as uh you know, what happened? How am I going to take care of this baby? You know, I got to get a job. I mean, just probably everything floods through your mind that is uh, is kind of unfathomable for most people. So, um, you know, I got to give her credit. She she raised a, a, a great daughter and, uh, you know, she she got her nursing degree later on in life. And she's been remarried, has three three more boys with her, her current husband. And, uh, you know, she's really, uh, you know, come back from that. But I know for, for a while it was a it was a struggle for her just to kind of come back from that, I think, and kind of wrap her head around everything. And, and, and you know, at 19, 20, 21 years old to, uh, to take care of all that and take care of a young daughter and stuff was tough. But she's uh, I think it shows a lot of tells a lot about her wherewithal and, and who she is. And so uh, she, she's done incredibly well uh, to, to be where she's at today. So she didn't even really have a chance to grieve because she's got to take care of this brand new baby that she's got. 
Absolutely. And I, I don't even know if she probably even looks at it that way or looks any different. It was just time for her to, you know, raise the baby. She had plenty of family members and, and friends and stuff to help her. But still, as as the sole caregiver for this baby, I, I think you're right. I think she she didn't have much time. It was just like you're called right into duty. I mean, it, even being 19 years old, I think at this day and age is young to be a parent. And, and now being a single parent and everything that comes along with that. And uh, it, 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 it had to be tough. I can't even imagine. But uh, she did incredibly well to uh to do what she did and how long were they married for uh they were married for a year, about a year and so not 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 very long you know they were, they dated forever high school you know grade school i think they started dating even grade school you know they were lifelong friends grade school high school and then uh, dated after high school and then got married and and, and had their baby and uh, so they knew each other for a long time dated for a long time and and you know everything kind of came crashing down that's just another sad part of the case. Although he was 20, it seemed like he really had a level head. He had a good job. He just got married, like you mentioned, just had a baby. If you can, tell us, you know, who he was, what, what kind of things he was into. Yeah, he was uh, he, he was an athlete. He played, uh, you know, soccer and baseball in high school and stuff. And he was uh, he, he was he was a fiery, fiery guy. He, he liked, uh, uh, you know, in sports and stuff, he, he got fired up and uh um, but uh, I think the biggest thing for him in, in his life, and, and I remembered when he when he had his daughter. I mean, that was the most exciting time for him. He was, uh, you know, even being twenty, you're you're, you're really young and, and pretty immature at that time. But he was uh, so excited to, to have a new baby, and uh, I mean, he was just bragging to everybody that uh, he had a baby. He was so excited, and uh, I mean, that was just a, a just a just a huge huge part of his life. And even at a young age, he was he was extremely excited. So it sounds like he was doing all the right stuff, not getting in trouble. Uh, was he ever involved in anything that could be dangerous or, or lead to, you know, a run-in with somebody that, you know, was the wrong crowd or anything like that? Well, and, and that's what we, that's what I've looked into a lot as well, too. And, uh, and anything that I found, even talking to his friends and uh, uh, and everything else, I mean, he never had an, an arrest or anything for any kind of uh, – uh, no arrest or run-ins with the law or anything like that, and any any kind of run-ins with with any type of people uh, that would would do any kind of harm like this, you know that that I know of. Um, I mean, obviously there there always could be some hidden stories somewhere, but um, from the friends that I know of his that I'm close with as well too, and the people that I talk to, um, you know, I haven't seen, you know, haven't heard of anything. So when they came back and told you, you know that not only did he die, but unfortunately he's murdered, you know, that shocks your family. What was your, what were your initial thoughts? Did you think that he was in the wrong place at the wrong time or was involved in something, uh, you know, you know, what were your thoughts as far as that whole thing? You know, at 16, I look back and like, I, I don't, I'm not even sure, uh, at that time, like, wow. I mean, that was back in, in, in you know 1982 and and, and, there, and there weren't there's wasn't, wasn't as much gun violence as there is now i mean if somebody was killed or shot at now i, I think it's you know you hear that about in the news you know five ten times a day uh, back then you didn't hear as much and i think that was even more rare back then i thought and i remember thinking that but uh uh i, I just remember thinking wow that's that's i mean just so unbelievable that I, I, I think it was hard to wrap my head around, like, why would somebody do that? And, and I think I even thought back then, wow, I mean, who carries a gun? 
there weren't many people that, that had guns and carried guns back then like they do now. So I think that was really a, a, a really a, a shock of the whole thing. And one of the things about the crime scene, and I know you've looked into it and studied it probably more than anybody, um, but it's 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 a little bit confusing about the layout of the accident scene versus where he was shot and where his car wound up being witnessed uh, winding up there. If you can, sort of walk us through the events as you understand them or as police told you how they unfolded and how Danny's car wound up where it did. Yeah, I think we're pretty clear now um, uh, of how things happen. I mean, he's, uh, he dropped uh, two friends off about uh, 2 o'clock in the morning at their house. Uh, he got on the highway, and it was a short stretch of highway, maybe a, a mile and a half on the highway between where he got on the highway into where he pulled over. So he, he pulled over on the side of the highway, um, and a car had pulled over in front of him. And in, in doing a lot of this research and, and, and things like that, I'm like, you know, you, you think about that for a second. Why would you pull over if you were somebody, ask anybody this question, why would you pull over on the side of the highway? It's 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning. You, his car was fine. There's nothing wrong with it. Uh, why would you pull over on the side of the road? And I think you pause for a second and you go, everybody that I've ever asked that question is, the same answer always comes up. You only pull over on the side of the road basically is if you know somebody, somebody's waving you over that you know or that you see somebody on the side of the road that needs help that you know. I mean, at 3 o'clock in the morning, you're not going to pull over on the side of the road for, for no reason. You're going to keep on going. So my, my, my thought and my gut feeling is that he knew who it was, and I think that's, that's the feeling in general. So he pulled over. The other car that was there pulled in front of him, and then the, the person, person or persons in the car in front of him got out of their car. I don't know all the details right there. Got out of their car, came up to the passenger side window as he's pulled over on the shoulder and shot five times into the car, um, hitting hitting my brother three times. And as they're shooting, my brother put his car in reverse and started backing back down the highway. He's going the wrong way, backing up down the highway. And then as he, you know, he's got three bullet holes in him, so I'm sure he wasn't, you know, all that coherent and, and things. So he backed into the, the center median and that's where his car landed about a hundred yards back down the road in the center uh, of the highway against the median. And that's kind of where his car ended. So he was witnessed, if I'm not mistaken, sort of going the wrong way down the freeway. Is that correct? Yeah. The wrong way backwards. And there was about, there was over 10, this is the, probably the most amazing part. One of the most amazing parts of the whole case. There was, there was 10, uh, there was 10 passerbyers that had called into the police that day and said, hey, um, I saw this car going backwards down the highway. Uh, it pulled right in front of me, cut in front of me. You know, different things that saw different things there as well, too, um, in front of them. And the amazing part is none of these were followed up with. And, and the, probably the most amazing part is there was a truck driver that gave a very detailed uh, definition of what he saw and I kind of laugh about this a little bit because in his description when he was when he called into the police he called into the police and he said you know I, I saw on the side of the road I saw this beautiful blonde haired woman on the side of the road by these two cars so I thought boy she might need some help I'm going to pull over and help her so he's you know he's driving in a big 18 wheeler truck so he's I'm, I'm kind of paraphrasing what he said in the interview he's gearing down his truck to slow down and he slowed down to about five miles an hour right in front where these two cars are, one being my brother's and one being the, the other car. And um, he, he saw the female there, and he gave a very vivid description of the female. 
um, blonde hair, or hair's pulled back like in a almost like a bun, but it's very long in the back. What kind of outfit she had on? And he said, as he got closer, he saw this woman, and then he saw a male come out of the weeds. You know, you're on the shoulder of the road, so he saw a male come out of the weeds right there. And he kind of was a uh, maybe five nine, five ten, kind of stocky, pigeon toed, had like a sport jacket on, a vest. Uh, nice slacks on and stuff, and then they jumped in the car and took off. I mean, he was very close to the scene, probably within 15, 20 feet of these people, and described these two people who, 99.9%, these two people are the killers, and described it to the police and called in, and the police did zero follow-up with this person at all. They just took the information that did not follow up with him at all. And... That went on for a while to where they didn't follow him up. Then did anybody voice her concerns that he, you know he wasn't followed up with? No, nobody followed up with this person at all. And when I looked back into this uh, not too long ago, kind of reopened the case. Uh, unfortunately, this witness has passed away since then. Uh, but the description he gave, I, I can say this: if if this description was given at the time of the murder, and they, you know, usually nowadays if some that type of description is given, you know, they have a you know, sketch artist or whatever it is, put that on the news, newspapers, on media outlets. They have a description of that. That case would have been solved, I believe, in one day or two days because I think they would have known who that, who those people were that were on the side of the road that looked like that. The guy had a description of the car, um, and the police basically, uh, for a lack of a better word, just ignored that information and did nothing with it. And what kind of description did he give of the actual car? Do you know what that was? Uh, he gave a description of the car. He, 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 and, and again, I, I don't mean to laugh at this part, but he said, uh, the truck driver said, I was so focused on this beautiful blonde that uh, he goes, I, I, I wasn't really looking at the car, but he said it was, a, it, was a, it was a later model car. So this is 1992 so or 82, 1982. He said it was a, a late model Chevy because you can tell by the long taillights. And, and back in those days, the Chevrolets had the long horizontal taillights in the back. So he said it was a dark green or black uh, late model Chevy with the long horizontal um, taillights in there. So that's really all the information that he had um, because and then when he pulled up, the car just, you know, he was like at five miles an hour. They jumped in the car and they took off and sped off and that was it. So the witness that saw this man and this woman on the side of the road was a truck driver. And he went into pretty good detail about what he saw. And can you share with us exactly what he described? Exactly. He was he was even a little hesitant to, to call in to the, to the police. But when he saw on the news that they were trying to... Uh, uh, basically pinned this on uh, on another guy who was a tall, curly-headed person. He, he basically said to the police, that is not the person I saw on the side of the road. I was within 15 feet of who I saw on the side of the road, and th- it was not a tall, skinny, curly-haired guy. Um, he described what he saw on the side of the road as a, uh, a very beautiful, young, blonde, maybe young 20s, a young blonde that had a tan outfit on. Uh, she had uh, her hair pulled back almost like when they used to pull it back to be in a bun, but then it was really long in the back. And then the male that came out of the weeds, which I, I, I described before, wore a dark sport coat, vest, and, and tan pants. And uh, I always think looking back there, uh, let me step back a little bit. It wore tan pants, and then uh, uh, he said, I even thought, the, the truck driver said the, the man came out, looked like he was even pigeon-toed and had slick back hair. 
So if whoever's listening to this or maybe in that area knew of anybody can think of a, of a couple of male and a female, maybe young 20s. Uh, that fits that description. I think back in the time, there weren't a lot of people that, that ran around in uh, suits and sport coats. So I think it, it might give a good description of somebody uh, that they could come forward and uh, call in a tip to, to the tip line that we'll give later. Uh, I think this is excellent information that uh, should, should have at the time definitely helped solve this, but I think it can still help um, at this time. And maybe somebody will remember somebody like that that fits that description. Absolutely. I think that I think people at that time may have been a little bit afraid to call in. But I think that's such an excellent description of uh, two people that were together, you know, a blonde haired woman, uh, another guy kind of short, shorter, stocky, pigeon toed, wore like a suit. Um, I I think that's a pretty good description of somebody that you somebody might say, well, I remember those people. That's they always used to dress up and dress really nice. And I remember her. She was a good looking blonde. That that may that may ring a bell to somebody. And so at this point, there's a a suspect that just the day before your brother was killed actually had shot at somebody. And, you know, one could make a case that perhaps he was involved because it happened right in that area the day before. But at the same time, that truck driver's description seems to go away from that guy. Uh, In your gut feeling, what's your take on on that suspect? Well... and absolutely, and the amazing part about this, just 24 hours prior, this suspect shot at another car, and this was within 150 feet of where my brother was shot. And, and, and you would say, well, that's just an easy suspect. This guy must have done the same thing. And I was always thinking, you know, I, I think the police led us to believe, okay, we, we researched this guy. We don't have any evidence on him, but it's got to be him. We, we basically put him in jail uh, for, for your brother's murder. We don't have any evidence on him, but you know, he, he's going to jail for this. So we, we've kind of wrapped it up. We don't have any evidence on him, but, but, but the funny thing is I, I, I had a hard time always believing, okay, this guy shot somebody at one place and he's going to go back to the exact same location 24 hours later and shoot at somebody again. I know they always say criminals usually get caught because they're dumb, but I just can't believe that that, uh, somebody's going to do that exact same thing. And the description this truck driver gave, the reason why he called into the police with this description is because uh, the description of this suspect who they say killed my brother has a um, – the description of the suspect is a tall, skinny man with with curly hair. And uh, this truck driver said, well, the guy that I saw on the side of the road right there was – like just the opposite of this, you know, five nine, stocky, pigeon toed. So that was not this guy. So that's why he called in and said that was not the guy uh, that I saw on the side of the road that you're saying did this. It is not him. So he called in, and actually this truck driver called in against his wife's advice. His wife said, "Don't get involved," and he said, "I need to because the guy that uh, was did this murder on the side of the road was not the curly haired guy they're saying who did it." And uh, so. You know, I've actually spoken to that uh, witness or spoken to that uh, suspect uh, myself about a year and a half ago. And, um, uh, you know, and I actually spoke to his girlfriend as well, too, at the time um, about the case. And and I I, I still get a feeling. I mean, anybody can lie to you at any time, but I still get a, a strong feeling that it wasn't him. So this is a big fail on the police department's, you know, on their end to not follow up this this witness and now they can't speak to him even if they wanted to 
Absolutely. I, I just I, I think they the sad part is they didn't follow up on him. And that's I mean, I asked the police sergeant that's in there now and the police sergeant uh, said, how, how do they not follow up on any of these 10 leads? And he goes, they got 10 leads. He said, you're lucky now if something happens and you get one or two people that see something. He goes, you never get people coming forward. And back then you had 11 people coming forward to say they saw something and they followed up on none of them. He goes, that's unbelievable. And, and this is a quote from the police sergeant that was in the, that's in there now. He's a, he's a young guy. He wasn't even alive uh, when my brother was killed. And he, he basically told me, he goes, I, I looked over your brother's case and he told me, he goes, you know, I don't know how they did things back then, but we don't do things like that anymore. And he told me, I, you know, I, I can't, I'm, I'm saying exactly what he said. I don't know what he meant by that, but he just said, we don't do things like that anymore. And, uh, you know, he, he, he didn't elaborate that on anymore, but, um, I, 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 I'll, I'll leave it at that. And were there any other things that you felt they might've mishandled along the way? Uh, oh, absolutely. I, I think a, a couple, a, a number of things are, um, you know, they didn't follow up on those witnesses. And I, and I think that one of the other key things is the people they interviewed. I mean, in detective school 101, even though I never attended that, um, you go, okay, when somebody dies, you go back to the family members, uh, the closest kin, the, the friends, and then you go back to where the, the, the murder victim was that night. You interview, you know, all the people that were there and just see if they saw anything, heard anything, whatever. And they basically did none of that. They, I was never interviewed. My sister, who's uh, a year older than me, actually hung around my brother a lot uh, during those years, was never interviewed. My brother's uh, two best friends were never interviewed. My parents were never officially that interviewed, like, uh, on, a, on a basis, and, and they only interviewed a handful of people that were even there the night where he was playing softball and, and out at the bars that night. They only interviewed a handful of people, like, and that was it. And it's almost like I, I almost feel like the, the police uh, chose and selected the people they interviewed uh, to make it easy on them, and then they ended that. So they, they're very real. I mean, I think if they would have interviewed – uh, family members or close friends, and, and like the question you asked earlier, did he have any run-ins with anybody? They would have said, well, he had a couple run-ins with, you know, maybe my sister's old boyfriend here and there, and things like that. Those things would have came out, and and they would have uh, done some different interviewing. But they never, believe it or not, interviewed family members, best friends, or even hardly any of the people that were there that night. And that's typically who they start out interviewing because it's easier to build a a circle of, you know, who's around that person and work their way out from there. I mean, that's like going to, like say, Detective School 101, that's the first thing you do, and they didn't. Uh, and I, I think there's reasons, I think there's reasons why they didn't do that. And uh, I think the police were influenced that time by outside forces, outside people. And, uh, you know, at that time in St. Louis, that was in you know the late 1970s, 1980s, that was uh, St. Louis was a time where there was, uh, you know, heavy, uh, how should I say, organized crime. And there was, uh, um, you know, um, some some battling going on between organized crime with uh, the bombing of cars and and shooting uh, family members that are involved in organized crime. And I think some of the organized crime had some influence on the police on, on what they were doing and who they interviewed. And that's why uh, they chose not to. I mean, there, there's, there's some deeper reasons why they didn't. And just one thing I wanted to go back on, uh, you had brought it up, the things that he was 
you know, Danny was doing that night. He was at a softball game. Then he wound up, you know, on the side of the road. Was there some missing time in between, uh, you know, those two points where they couldn't account for? Yeah, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. So yeah, so he 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 went to the, the, the played softball. He they all after the softball game, they all went to uh, uh, the pipe fitters local 562 where he was a member of. They they played softball there. They played softball. They went to the bar that was uh, uh, a bar restaurant that's on the the property there that closes at 11:30. Uh, they went to a house that's uh, owned by uh, one of the union members right there on the property. They went there and and hung out and drank beers and stuff till uh, till about one thirty or so. And then he dropped two friends off, uh, two of his close friends off, uh, about eight miles away. And uh, and between two o'clock and about three thirty in the morning, they, 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 there's no they don't know where he was or what he did or anything like that. There's really no record of. Of, of where he was, but just to back up a minute, just show you a little bit more. So he dropped two friends off the last two people to see him. They did interview one of them and, and the poor kid. I mean, he was 20 years old and uh, I think he was in shock for, for a long time. He was the last person to see my brother and he was his good friend. And, and, and he was in shock, I think from, from this, from the situation, which I don't blame him, but the other guy that they dropped off, he was never interviewed. Um, ever by the police or even up to this moment. I just talked to this guy uh, about three months ago, and he said the police never contacted him about interviewing him about anything. And uh, to this day, I can't believe that, you know, the last two people that my brother saw before he was killed were, were, you know, the one kid was interviewed and the other one was never even interviewed by the police. Uh, So these are all things that you've been checking off the list and sort of doing your own sort of investigation with for the last 35 years. How does how do you keep yourself going? What makes you, you know, stay motivated to do this for your brother thirty five years later? You know, I I don't know if it's justification for him. I think it's more justification for um, probably more for my parents and uh, and, and more for his daughter. And uh, you know, being a parent myself, I've got three kids, and, and I can only imagine that you lose your. Uh, not only a child, your firstborn, and you lose a child, and I, I see how it affected my parents back then, and all through the years, and it and it still is is still fairly raw with them even now, you know, thirty six years later, it's still raw for them for for this situation, how it went down, how it was handled, just everything, and and I, I think you know they're almost eighty years old, and I think it may bring some type of closure and, and justification for them. Um, so I think that sometimes kind of keeps you going and it, it, it's a lot of, it's a lot of time consuming and it's not a lot of work just to follow up on people and find out where people are and talk to people and stuff. But you, know, you start putting pieces together and, and things start making sense. Yeah, no, you know, you know, one of the things I was going to say in St. Louis County, this is, this is, this is almost unbelievable and sad in St. Louis County is as big as St. Louis County is, uh, the cold case department in St. Louis County is one half of one detective. So it's one part-time detective working on all cold cases. And, and that includes rape, armed robbery, and all murders that are cold cases in the county of St. Louis. Wow. And how many cold cases do they have? Yeah. I mean, it's got, if you, I mean, we have 250 murders every year. And if you think of how many rapes and armed robberies go unsolved every year, and that's over the last, you know, 30, 40, 50 years. And so it's hundreds of them. And uh, so you got one guy that's working uh, two and a half days a week. Wow. I mean, that, then that's unfortunately, that's something that I see a lot of across the country, you know, different departments understaffed and 
they don't have the resources and the fresh stuff that has a better chance of being solved gets pushed to the front of the line and unfortunately cases without witnesses, without you know evidence, uh, you know they sort of get moved to the back, you know the back of the line and that's unfortunate. Not fully investigating it, but and one of the things you've done is you have a Facebook page up about Danny's case. Tell us a little bit about the Facebook page and where people can find it. Yeah, the Facebook page is called uh, Danny King 1982 Unsolved Murder. Um, there's some photos on there, and he's got uh, uh, the daughter he had that was three days old when, when he was killed. Uh, now is, uh, is married. Molly is, is married. She's got two sets of twins. Um, so she's got four kids, married, great husband, you know, great kid. She's a nurse and, and, uh, and she's doing really well. And, and we see her, you know, on a regular basis and she's part of the family, just, you know, like anybody else. And so, um, she's done really well. And I think that's one of the saddest parts when I, you know, read through this case and, uh, heard from you about it was just the fact that Danny missed out on that entire joy of being a father and, you know, not just that, but his daughter missed out on knowing her dad. How's she doing? How did she, uh, you know, you mentioned she's a nurse and she's has a family now of her own. How has she taken it over the years, you know, that she lost her father in this way without ever really getting to know him? Yeah, I, I think it's been tough on her. I think when she was younger, it was, it was tough on her. I think now she's uh, she's more like, you know, I, I really like to see some type of justice and, and now looking into this to see what has happened in, in this case and how uh, the injustice and how really not much was done, if anything, to solve this. And uh, just to see this um, is really, you know, gotten her fired up as well, too. Like, hey, let's, you know, let, let, let's let's work on this and let's try to figure something out because it's, you know, it's, it's so unjust and. It's, it's so it, the whole thing is just so sad and, and really the amount of work that the police have put into this and it's uh, the, the police have actually put up some roadblocks even to us uh, throughout this process over the years and, and I think she feels like she wants some uh, she wants some justice done for her dad as well so well I definitely hope for her sake and for yours and the rest of your families that somehow you know this case does get solved one day. In the meantime, it's very important we want to let listeners know how they can help if they somehow have information about this case. Who can they contact if they think they know something? Yeah, there's a there's a tip line. There's a Crime Stoppers tip line in St. Louis. I don't know if that's a, a nationwide thing, I believe, but it's a Crime Stoppers tip line. It's one eight six six three seven one eight four seven seven. And they can just call in and, uh, you know, if they say, I you know, have some information on Danny King, uh, something in St. Louis, uh, anything about it, if they mention it, uh, it's totally anonymous. Uh, there's a reward, a $5,000 reward with any kind of information uh, leading to, uh, to an arrest. And so um, you can go right on there and call it in and just, and just leave a message. And uh, that's, that's the best way to leave any information that goes right to the police and they'll follow up on it. Well, let's hope that somebody out there knows something and we'll be sure to share it on social media as well. And maybe people in that area can also share it and wake up the case a little bit. Well, great. I appreciate your time and I appreciate the uh, publicity on the case and any, any, any bit will certainly help. I appreciate it. Thanks for coming on, Jim. Thank you. Thank you for joining me for this episode of The Murder of My Family. If you enjoy this podcast, please take a moment to rate and review it on Apple Podcasts 
or wherever you listen to podcasts so that the show can continue to reach new listeners. To learn more about the show or the cases we discuss, please visit themurderinmyfamily.com. You can also find us on Twitter with the handle at murderinmyfam or by searching the Murder in My Family podcast on Facebook. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon, it's always appreciated, and you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash the murder my family. If you prefer to, you can also support the show through a PayPal donation by visiting paypal.me forward slash the murder my family. In each episode, I'll give shout outs to any new supporters. In this episode, I'd like to thank Shelly and Twila Chandler. And thanks to all the supporters that generously donate and keep this podcast going. Your support is appreciated and helps the show grow and improve. Until next time, remember, every murder victim means something to somebody. If you would like to discuss the murder in your family on this podcast, please be sure to visit themurderinmyfamily.com for more information.